Malachi 1, 6 through 14. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you may not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we have heard your word. And we thank you, Father God, that you have given us a revelation of yourself. And Father, even now we pray, God, that that revelation would deepen in our hearts. God, that we would see the heart of this people, God, that you, you call us out of and that you call us to not imitate, that we would hear and see your heart and your burden and that we would hearken ourselves unto you. Father God, we praise you for indeed you are a great and mighty king who holds all things together. For the, God, you are the reason we exist. You are the reason that we are here. Lord, may our lives lived before you be, be done with praise and honor and joy. Father God, we, I lift up this congregation to you, God, and I pray that as in, a community of individual followers of Christ, Lord God, that we would bring honor and blessing and praise to your name, God, on Sunday morning on in everything that happens during the week. Lord God, I lift up those of us, Lord, that are students, Students still, 
God, and I pray for our students. God, I thank you for Amore for the other night, for the great time it was, a time of blessing and joy and encouragement. Lord, did you see the gifts of those teenagers, the gifts and the passion of the volunteers, Lord, the work that you're doing, God. I pray for your continued blessing on Kaoni and Andrea, God. I pray you'd bless them with joy and endurance and perseverance and power, Lord God, in that ministry. Father God, I pray for our teens, God, that as they go to school, Lord, that they would be a witness unto you, that, God, they would come to know you as the God of the universe, that their faith would be real, that it would be genuine, Lord God. I pray that you would do such a great work in our young people, God, that your work in them would be an encouragement to their parents and their grandparents, that they would say, wow, look at the Lord's work in their heart. Father God, I pray for those of us, God, that work as teachers. Jesus, I pray, whether they're in a private school or a public school or homeschooling, Lord God, I pray that they would represent you well. God, that they would reflect your love and your light in the people that they are ministering to. God, I pray for our nurses and our doctors and people in medical professions. Lord God, I pray that you'd give them, they would be the hands and feet of Christ, showing compassion and care. Lord God, that even as they are binding wounds and working to heal illnesses, God, that you'd give them opportunities to show how someone's soul may be healed and their place before you set right. Lord God, I lift up those who own their own businesses, Father God, from those that are in painting and construction and mechanics and electricians and plumbers. Lord God, I pray that they would testify to your worth, Lord, by being fair, by being just, Lord, by not cheating, Lord, by having a good reputation in the community as being someone who is trustworthy and efficient and skilled at their work. And God, I pray that you'd provide for them and their families. Lord God, I pray for those that are home, Lord God, perhaps taking care of kids. God, I pray that you'd give them endurance and perseverance and joy, even amidst what can feel like a daily monotony, God, that they would have a Brother Lawrence-esque moments, God, where they would be delighting in your presence even as they do menial things, realizing that that can be an act of worship. And God, I pray for those who are retired, who are not working. God, I pray that they would use the gift of their time for the advancement of your glory. And they would see that extra time as a blessing, God, to serve and to seek the lost. Father God, thank you so much for our time together tonight. Pray, God, that you would expand our vision of your greatness and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we begin to enter what I think is the challenging section after section here in the book of Malachi. And Lord willing, you'll stick with us through the next seven weeks as we hear God's response to the barren tree that he sees of Israel. So the question that I think permeates the text this morning is a rather scandalous question. Is there a kind of worship that is almost worthless? It almost sounds scandalous to ask that question, I think. Is there a kind of worship that is borders on worthless? A worship that brings no pleasure to God. A worship that does not benefit your soul. A worship that does not serve your neighbor. 
Is it possible to listen to a sermon, to partake in communion, to sing with the gathered saints, to serve in the church and in the world, and have it not be helpful? That's the question our text looks at this morning. We're in the book of Malachi, and like this picture behind us, we've got this barren tree that even as we look at, we can imagine what it could be. We can imagine it budding with flowers, white or red or purple, vibrant and fruitful. And yet instead we see this dismal tree against a magnificent background. The glory of God shining through like the sun. And we hear God's response to this tree. Three things we're going to see this morning. One, we see the nature of of worthless worship. Secondly, we see the purpose of true worship. And third, we see the reason for true worship. The nature of worthless worship. Verse 10, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle a fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. And I will not accept an offering from your hand. It's a shocking statement. Here the priests are, and it's specifically directed at the priests. The priests are, and they're making these offerings. They're making these sacrifices to the Lord. And here God is looking down on their worship, on their sacrifice. And he's saying, I wish you'd just stop. I wish there was someone bold enough and faithful enough that they would just throw you out, slam shut the door, and lock it. I mean, it's almost like he's imagining the picture of Jesus in John chapter 2 when he clears the temple and he throws everyone out, right? He's saying, I wish you'd just stop. How have things gotten to the point where God is looking down on the worship of his people and he would say, I wish you would just Stop. I think there's three stages, a three-step descent that we see in the text that they've taken. Step one, they're treating God worse than a human authority. Now, some of us might agree that we ought to treat God differently than we treat other human beings, right? I think some of us would agree on that. We'd say, yeah, of course we should treat God differently. And the Israelites are. They're looking at the king of glory who made the heavens and the earth, who causes the rise and the fall of nations, who will judge the living and the dead. They are, in fact, treating him much differently than they would treat any human authority. The problem is they're not treating him better. They're treating him worse. They're treating him worse. See that in verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food on my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that evil? Not evil. Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? 
The Lord is drawing our attention to this kind of basic human principle in order to make his point. He's saying, if you had over the CEO of your company, or your boss, or an important legislator, or perhaps your principal, or your coach, if you had this authority figure come over to your house, this person that could really define your destiny from a human perspective, if you had them over, and assuming you wanted to make a good impression, would you feed them meat that when you went to the store, you went to buy it and you intentionally looked for something that had already expired? When you're going to make the salad, would you go through and say, hey, I need to find something that's already starting to get slimy and sticky and smelly? Would you serve them a cider that was already fermented to the point where they would just spit it out of their mouths? No. He wouldn't treat them with such disrespect and irreverence. And he's looking at the priest and he's saying, if you would show that, if, why, if you would not show that disrespect to your governor, why are you treating me that way? Who is greater, your principal or me? Your governor or me? Your master or me? You are showing me less honor, fear, and reverence than you would show a human being. Your worship has become evil. Striking phrase, evil. That's why I use, again, what I think is a scandalous phrase, worthless worship. It's worthless because it's become evil. It's wicked. There is nothing virtuous about it. They are going through the motions, and God is saying, I take no pleasure in you. It's a sobering thought. We can fall into the place where we give God less honor and respect than we might give our peer or our coworker, our parents, maybe even our children. We see specifically how they do this. Step two, they are despising God through unbiblical worship. Both the priests and the people are committing this sin. The people are bringing polluted food. We see it in verse 13b. God says, you're bringing animals that were captured in violence. I mean, think about that for a minute. Okay, we know we've got to make God an offering. We know we've got to, you know, bring an animal. Why don't we just steal one? Why don't we just beat someone up and take it from them? That would be like if you felt this need, like, oh, I must give as part of the offering like we just did 10 minutes ago, and you're on your way to church, and you walk up to someone in the parking lot, and you, you, know, you, pull, you do like a hockey move. You pull the shirt over their head, pop them in the face, and take their wallet, and then say, okay, I'm ready to give my offering. Here we go. Like, like robbing an ATM on the way to church, and then thinking, well, I'm going to give to God, and clearly, therefore, I will be right with him. Verse 14 says that they're, they're promising God a good sacrifice. They promise him their best. And then they turn around and they give him something that is blemished. And we have this tragedy inherent in the text. You notice God inherently directs the biggest judgment against the priests. But even though in verse 13, 14, we can tell the people are bringing these offerings. And here's the tragedy. The priests who are meant to be the gatekeepers of the glory of God. 
and then to call the people up to reverence him for his glory. As the people are coming and bringing these blemished offerings, the priests are letting them. They might even be encouraging them. I mean, think of how backwards that is. Imagine if you play a sport and you went on the first day of you know, practice and, or you know, maybe in the spring season and the coach looked at you and said, I want you guys to just destroy your bodies this season. I want you to, to smoke. I want you to eat awful. I want you to get no sleep. I want you to get high as much as you can. I want you to destroy yourselves while we're going about this season. You'd think the coach was crazy. Because it's the exact opposite of what the coach is supposed to do. Every coach I ever had playing a sport would talk about your sleep, signing your contract of what you, you know, would or would not do, and trying to get yourself in the best physical condition to perform at peak excellence. That's the coach's job, right? And so imagine how backwards it would be if the coach encouraged you to put your body in the place that you would perform miserably. That's what the priests are doing. They are putting the people in the place for harm, not good. Leviticus twenty-two seventeen describes God's vision for what the sacrifices were supposed to be. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and to his sons and to all the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of the house of Israel or of the sojourners in Israel presents a burnt offering as his offering for any of their vows or their freewill offerings that they offer to the Lord, if it is to be accepted, for you it shall be a male without blemish. Of the bulls, of the sheep, or the goats, you shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable to you. God gives a clear directive, right? A clear command. Offer something without spot or blemish. And if we had more time, we would talk about how significant that is because it points to the lamb who would be slain before the foundation of the world, who himself was without spot or blemish. So in many ways, again, five-second afterthought, them failing to do this is failing to pave the way for the gospel. Them failing to do this is diminishing the necessity of the perfect Son of God that came to die in our place for our sins. God made it clear how he he says he wants to be worshipped. He makes it clear how he wants to be worshipped. And this is a challenging thought for some of us. That not only does the living God command us to worship him, to adore him, He wants to be worshipped, but he cares very much about how he is worshipped. God does not want to be worshipped according to our inclination, but according to his revelation. We see this throughout Scripture, time and time again. People that are judged, not because they worship God, but because they worship God in an inappropriate fashion, whether it is Korah, whether whether it is Uzzah, Saul, Ananias, and Sapphira. The scriptures are littered with examples of people that are judged, that are condemned, that are punished because they worship God in a way opposite of the one that he commanded. That's what we see right here. 
the Israelites by intentionally, and that's the phrase, intentionally offering to God something other than he has commanded or earning judgment rather than praise. And we see the same thing for us, don't we? God tells us that we are to take the bread and the cup Do this in remembrance of me, right? But then he says, hey, some of you are taking the cup in an unworthy manner, and that is why you have died. Because you've not seen it as the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, some of you do not take communion. You're sitting there taking communion while you're seething with anger and desiring vengeance over another person for whom Christ died. Don't you dare take communion until you reconcile with that person. God cares very much about being worshipped, but he cares about how he is worshipped. These people are worshipping him in a way that he did not want to be worshipped. And I think, there's a, I think there's a clear reason why. They're offering him something that would not cost They're coming and they're saying, okay, well, we've got to go through the motions. We've got to worship with something, but we're going to give him our last rather than our first. We'll give him the animal that's not worth a thing to us or to anyone else rather than something that is valuable. We're going to talk more about this in a few weeks, so we're being brief right now. But, But contrast that with David and the example David gives. You know, God, God sends a plague on the nation of Israel in response to David's sin. And for three days, there's this plague upon the nation of Israel. And then God shows David the way by which the plague may be averted. David goes and he sees the angel that is sending the plague. And he's standing at the threshing floor of um, Arunah. And God says, you're going to build an altar right there, and you're going to sacrifice burnt offerings right there. And when you sacrifice those burnt offerings, I will end the plague. And so David and his men, they run to the field of Arana, the threshing floor, and they meet him, and they say, okay, well, David says, I need to buy your field. And Arana is great. He says, you can have it. You can have it, king. Take the field. Hey, I'll get you some wood. I'll get you the oxen. I'll give you everything you need to present this offering to the Lord that he has commanded. Aaron has given David the way by which he can worship God without it costing him anything. And David's response in 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel 24, 24 is short and powerful. But the king said to Aaron, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer Burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. True worship always has an element of cost. It may may cost us our wealth. It may cost us our dreams. It may cost us our time. It may cost us being involved in difficult things. True, uh, true worship always has an element of cost, and it is paying that cost that shows God's worth, and it declares our love and our devotion unto him. Why were the Israelites not giving that to God? Why? Why were they the place where they were happy to worship as long as it cost them nothing? That brings us to step three. We see that there is a sin Behind the sin. Verse 13, God is speaking to the priest. He says, But you say, 
What a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. They're sinning by bringing animals without spot or blemish. But that's not the root sin. There's a sin behind that sin. And it's their heart attitude. They don't want to offer to the Lord choice offerings because ultimately they don't think he's worth it. They don't think he's worth it. If they thought his, he was worth it, they would not be snorting and grumbling and complaining. They would be walking into the temple with joy and saying, thank the Lord we can come in his presence. Thank the Lord we can offer him these gifts. Thank the Lord he's made the way by which we can praise him. Thank the Lord that he has redeemed us. Thank the Lord that he is our strong tower. But they don't do that. They snort, they grumble, they say, this is so much work. Worship has become a duty rather than a delight. And when it becomes that for our souls, we begin falling down the path towards dead orthodoxy. It becomes a duty, an obligation rather than a blessing. One commentator writes, quote, when duty displaces devotion, human nature is such that it seeks minimum steps, barely enough to meet the obligation. This contrasts with a true love relationship seeking to do the maximum for the beloved. Israel, and in particular her priests, are seen having lost their first love. Imagine bringing flowers. Here we are on Valentine's Day. Bringing flowers to the person you love and them say, thank you so much for bringing me flowers. And then, they, and then you look at them and you say, well, I did it because I know I had to. You might want to take a walk. Or imagine if you brought them those flowers and they were turned and rotting and gross. Here, this is what I thought of when I thought of you. You might want to take a long walk and go try again. Imagine worse if you knew that this person you loved was desiring a pledge of affection because maybe they gave some hints and you just looked at them in the face and said I don't think you're worth it we cry at that thought on a human level and we ought to cry and yet we're talking about a great king worthy of all thanks honor and praise perfect in his love Powerful in the exercise of his might. A God of love and grace and mercy. Who called you to himself before you were ever thinking about him. He deserves so much more. So much more. Does corporate worship feel like a duty or a delight to you this morning? Does singing with the gathered saints feel like an obligation or a heavenly grace? 
to serving the children across the hall or mentoring the teens or leading a Bible study sound like something we're thanking God for the privilege of or snorting at, well, I need to do this or someone's going to be mad at me. The example of the Israelites both challenges us and it frees us. It challenges us because it reminds us God doesn't just want worship. God wants true worship. God doesn't want us to just go through the motions. He doesn't just want you to, you know, kind of act like you're doing it. That challenges us. Because it means he doesn't just care about the outside. I can't fake it with God. And he wants more than my performance. That challenges us, but that also frees us. It frees us. Because it means God wants your heart. He wants your heart. He doesn't need your work. He wants your heart. He doesn't need your offerings. He wants your heart. What does he say? I do not delight in, you know, the blood of sheep and goats. I desire mercy more than sacrifice. I desire obedience more than sacrifice. God wants your heart. And that's freeing. You can feel his anguish in Matthew 15, 8 when he says, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. God wants your heart. And that says something about his heart, doesn't it? It says something about his heart. And so where are you at with that this morning? Maybe this is the morning where you've got to say, God, my heart is not right with you. I snort and I grumble and I come wake up when the alarm goes off every Sunday morning and say, what a weariness this is. And every time I open up my checkbook, I say, what a weariness this is. And every time I have the opportunity to serve another person, I think, what a weariness this is. If you can say that is where my heart is this morning. And that is not where I want it to, my heart to stay. Then this is not the worst day of your life. This could be the beginning of one of the best. Because let this be the morning where you say, Lord God, I am not, do not have the heart you want me to have. Change it. I need some radical heart surgery. I need some help. I need you to, I need you to give me love for you and for the, your people and for the things of God. God, I don't love my neighbor, but I want to love my neighbor. I don't love the saints, but I want to love the saints. God, I do not love you with all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength, but I want to. Help me. Help me. Make me the man or the woman you want me to be. God held up a mirror to the Israelites through Malachi 2,500 years ago, not because he just wanted to drive them down in the ground, because he wanted to call them up. He wanted to show them who they really were so that by his grace they would become who he called them to be, that they would bear forth fruit for his glory. Two. We see the purpose of true worship. Text shows us that worship is a celebration of God's glory which brings him pleasure by declaring the fame of his name. 
Worship is a celebration of God's glory, which brings him pleasure by declaring the fame of his name. Let's attack that in the three parts to it. Maybe it should have a comma in it, but I'm not a good with grammar. So it doesn't. Worship is a celebration of God's glory. The people gave God no honor. And it's really amazing that as you look through this passage we're examining this morning, God is going out of his way to remind them of who he is. He says, how many times do you see him use the phrase, Lord of hosts? In these short, what, eight, no, eight verses, he uses the phrase, Lord of hosts, six times. The name, phrase, Lord of hosts, occurs more in Malachi than any other Old Testament book. 46% of the occurrences of Lord of hosts in the Old Testament occur in the book of Malachi. And in fact, the other majority of them occur in other places among the old, in the Old Testament prophets particularly, where the people are in the same place as they are in Malachi. They've forgotten how mighty our king is. They've forgotten that he is the one that controls all of the armies of heaven. The same Jesus who said, hey, if I wanted to right now, I could have 12 legions of angels at my side. If I needed rescuing, he is the one who can bend the heart of the king whichever way he wants it to go. He is the one who truly reigns over all of the nations of the earth and every living creature. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. We do not worship a small God whose arm is too short to answer your prayers, to accomplish his purpose, or to redeem a people for himself. No. How many times does he say, I am a great king? And you see in the text, he often says it right after he talks about their worthless worship. I am a great king. Let's remember who I am. The quality of our worship is directly proportional to our vision of God's glory. When our God is small, our worship is weak and anemic and brings him small pleasure. When our vision of his glory is vast and big and wide, our worship is rich and bounteous and brings him joy. He is a great king. God is the one who dwelt in eternity past in a loving relationship with himself within the Trinity. He is the one who spoke the universe into existence and laid the foundations of the earth. He is the one who measured the boundaries of the waters and created the fish of the sea that no man or woman has yet to set an eye upon. He is the one who every night causes the sun to set as it races across the earth like like it's on fire, a chariot racing across the sky. He is the one who hears the prayers of the faithful around the world this very moment all uttered together in language after language after language. He is the one who knew all of your days before one of them came to be. He is the one who is going to judge the living and the dead, who will separate the righteous and the wicked, who will bring into judgment every careless word and deed. He is the one the true king, the mighty king, the great king who commands all of the earth to stand in awe of his majesty. Isaiah chapter 6 should not be a unique experience among the people of God. 
Habakkuk chapter 2 says, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. I indict myself when I ask the question, is the worship that I personally bring to God, is the worship that the collected church in America today brings for God such that we would stand silent before him? Are we that in awe of his power and his majesty? You know, I had a former student of mine, she recently got engaged. And so I see a lot of pictures coming up on Facebook now. I, I want to call it the engagement role. You know, often when someone gets engaged, you see this, this, I think this is a normal experience where all of a sudden every picture has the ring. And it's really amazing how the ring can feature in every picture, no matter how you've got to contort. You know, so there'll be a picture of her like this and people around. There'll be a picture of her and the guy and the hands on the chest very, you know, clearly and prominently. You know, I mean, it's like the elbow can go in like really weird directions to make the ring enter into every picture. It's always there. It's, I don't know how they do that. Got to be a gymnast to make it happen. And that's what happens when someone gets engaged, right? We, 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 women especially sometimes... Sometimes the bros, we're feeling it too. But we say, show me the ring. Let me see the ring. And it's like this gaggle forms. And we laugh and we smile. And, we, and every ring is beautiful. Right? Every ring is beautiful. And, there, and there's this, this burden of the bride. Let me show you. Let me show you. Let me show you. Let me show you the ring. I can remember well, when Corey and I got engaged, we were walking down a mountain. And this is a good story. I'm not tell a story, but we were walking down the mountain, and it was New Year's Eve, and these four guys were coming up, and or four, two guys and two girls, and Corey's like, "I just got engaged," and the guys looked at me like, "Just ruined my New Year's," and the girls were like, "Yay! Show me the ring! You don't even have to know someone to want to see the ring, right? Show me, show me!" It's like that's the only case where stalking is permitted. You got a ring, let me see it. I'll follow you. Watch out there. There is this celebration of the ring and its beauty, and more importantly, what it represents. Worship is a celebration of God's glory. Where we, and we say, look at him, look at him, look at him. He's worthy, he's great, he is a great king. You know, in the same way that the ring is supposed to be in some way a reflection on, of the love that the, the husband, is, future husband is going to have for the future wife and a reflection of her worth and her beauty and her value. When we worship, we say, look at him. He is worthy of all of our thanks, honor, and praise. The angels stand in his presence and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. When we worship, we celebrate God's glory. We and that brings him pleasure. Verses 8 to 9. Present that to your governor. Will he show you favor? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? You know, the... Those two verses, 8 and 9, are framed in the negative, but it's clear God desires the positive. You see that? 
He's saying, hey, the, do you really think I'm going sh- to show you any favor because of the quality of your worship? And he's, he's presuming that you know, the response is no. But it's clear that God desires the opposite. The quality of their worship, the quality of our worship, has the potential to bring God pleasure, favor from his name. He wishes, you can hear the heart of God, he wishes that their worship was such that he could favor them. You see that? He wishes their worship was such that he could show them favor and blessing. Do we even have a category for this? Because I think there are some of us that are so powerfully aware of the heinousness of our sin that we do not believe we can contribute to the divine happiness. And we are wrong. Scriptures tell us that God loves a cheerful giver. That's the quote. He loves a cheerful giver. He tells us he desires obedience more than sacrifice. From the warp and woof of Scripture, we see God delighting in the true praises of his people. We see God look down on Abraham and say, he was called God's friend. He looks down on David and says, he's a man after my own heart. I mean, the book of Job centers around like the throwdown of the universe. God looks at the enemy of our souls, slaps him in the face like a gauntlet and says, look at my servant Job, there is no one like him. God is delighting in the faithfulness of his Servant, if you walk around thinking that there is nothing that you can ever do to make God happy, I'm happy to tell you you're wrong. If you, if you think there is no way you can ever bring him to delight, I am very happy to tell you that you are wrong. Come out of that hopelessness. That is, come out of that bleak backdrop and embrace the fact that your life lived before the Lord has the potential to bring him joy. When God's people celebrate his glory, they bring him pleasure by declaring the fame of his name. Verse 11, favorite verse in the whole book, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. Verse 14b, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Do you see that God doesn't want his glory to just be enjoyed by his people as if they are a holy huddle in the nation of Israel? He wants his glory to spread. He wants his glory to be magnified. He wants it to be known that among every people group among under the stars there would be the knowledge of his fame and it's important to note that our that God's glory is not contingent upon our worship let me be very clear about that God's glory is not contingent upon our worship our worship however exists to reflect declare and demonstrate his worth and glory for all to see the purpose of this time of corporate worship, which we have been in t- together in this morning, is meant that people would walk into this presence and they would say, they really believe in this God. 
He is a great king. They love him. You can see God's fear. God is thinking if, if an unbeliever walked into the worship that was happening in the nation of Israel, what would he conclude about their faith and about the power of their God? They would conclude based on the, the offering and the, and the attitude of the Israelites that God, the God they said they worshipped, was not worthy of their best that he was a small, insignificant God. And here God's saying, I want someone to walk in your presence and say, he is a great king. I want someone to walk in your presence and see that you believe that I am a great king. The purpose of that we as a people would shout back to God the worth of his name, that we would be like the bride running around, look at him, look at him, look at him. There's no one like him. There's no one worthy like him. There's no one with this kind of power or this kind of love or this kind of grace. He is worthy no matter what is going on in my life, no matter what the headlines in the news are that morning. He is worthy no matter what the college professor at that school says. He is worthy. He is faithful to every one of his promises. He is faithful when we are faithless. He is just. He is righteous. He has been shouting out who he is since the dawn of time. Psalm 96 says, Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. God's burden is that our collective worship here, in this room right now, week after week, in every ministry of this church, in every act that you have outside of this church, whether that is at work or at school or on the golf course, that all of our worship before him would be with such awe and reverence that people would come into our midst and that there would be this whisper, this growing whisper in Ottawa County that God's name is great, that he is worthy of praise. That's what happened in Daniel chapter 2. That's what Solomon desired when he consecrated the temple in 1 Kings 8. That's what Jesus meant when he said, let your, good deed, let your light shine before men that they might see your good deeds and praise your Father who is up in heaven. May our worship be a celebration of God's glory which brings him pleasure by declaring the fame of his name to people around the earth. Finally, we see the reason for true worship. If we have any doubt why God is worthy of all of our worship, thanks, honor, and praise, we have no further than to look at the cross of Jesus Christ. Because at the cross, we see that God is a great king. Because it's the cross where we, we are reminded that God did not look down on the plight of man living in the midst of sin, feeling the pain that we experience living in a fallen world and God did not look down and say, well, I guess that's the new normal. I guess that's just how it's gonna be. That's what they wanted, that's what they'll get. 
The fall had barely happened, and God in Genesis 3 was looking forward to the time when Lord Jesus would crush the head of Satan. A day didn't go by before he advertised his solution to our sin problem. And it's the cross that we see. This plan that in eternity past past God devised whereby he would punish sin and atone for sinners for the fame of his name through the blood of Jesus Christ. He is a great king and the cross declares it for everyone that will look at it. He is a king that is mighty enough that he could die in the place of every sin that had been committed for the sake of those who will believe. That they could be reconciled to his throne. He's a great king because he was willing to humble himself and die the death that no one would die. And in fact, I would argue that every beautiful love story is reflecting the cross, is reflecting Jesus laying down his life at the cross. Whether you want to talk about the greatest poetry, I was thinking this morning of, and I forget who wrote the poem, The Highwayman. And in The Highwayman, you see this poem where this, the, the, there's these two people and they're in love and she works in an inn and the British want to go and they want to capture her, her lover. And he, and he comes and he, on horseback and he visits her every night and she always hears him coming on the horse and he doesn't realize the one night he is coming and the British, they get there because they want to get him and they've got a gun there trained on her. And the idea is, if you say a word, as she's standing there waiting in the window for him, if you say a word, we're going to shoot you down. But if you let him get here, we will let you live. And the highwayman is riding up on his horse, and he's getting closer and closer. And the next thing he hears is a gunshot. Because she loved him enough, she died that he might live. Our culture, our even pagan culture, we are gripped with these stories, aren't we? We look to poetry. Gosh, you can look to Frozen. Yes, yes, laugh, laugh. But it's there. Sort of. And that is a reflection of God's revelation. There is this part of us, even in the pagan world, that we see the beauty and the splendor of loving someone enough that you would lay down your life in their place. And every culture around the world has stories where they celebrate that act. But there is one significant thing that makes, shows us the greatness of the king at the cross that none of those stories have. Jesus did not die for a bride that was spotless and pure and loved him back with everything she had. Jesus died for a bride in her sin, living in rebellion against him, blaspheming him with her life and her actions and her words wanting nothing to do with his love. And he died in her place before she said, I love you. He died that she might say, I love you. That is the greatness of our king. Would any other king die in the place of a rebellious people that a barren, lifeless tree might bear fruit 
for his glory. Would any other king say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do? From the rising of the sun to its setting, his name will be great among the nations. The greatness of our king is that he did not come to save a huddle of 10 people. He came to save people, Pantata Ethne, to all the peoples of the earth, people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, that people that speak German and Swahili and Chinese would all become part of the family of God as he draws them to himself. People from every end of the earth will be in the family of God because he is a king great enough to work salvation from among every ethnic group the world over. He is a great king. May this be the day that we rejoice in the greatness of our king. May this be the day where we commit to asking him to refine our hearts that we would not go through the motions anymore, but that our actions would be beautiful because they were a reflection of our heart, that by his grace he's made beautiful through the cross of Christ. May this be the morning where we commit and say, his name is great among the nations from the rising of the sun to its shedding, and we will give all to see the gospel permeate every ethnic group, every hill, every mountain, every valley, cross every ocean around this world that people might know the greatness of this king where they live in a city or in a jungle or anywhere in between. May this be the day where we worship him in reverence and awe for the fame of his name. Let's pray. Father God, I just pray, God, that you would humble us, chasten us, and free us and encourage us with this vision, Lord, of your glory. This vision, Father, of your greatness. God, may we as a people know you as a great king. May we love you as a great king. May we live our lives before you as a great king. Father God, may we never despise your name. May we never fall into mechanical worship. May we repent of any weariness or snorting that we have, God. May this never be a church, God, that even comes remotely close to dead orthodoxy. May our faith be alive and may Grace Community Church flourish as it reflects your glory and not our own. We are still in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together and be dismissed. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift his countenance upon you in favor and give you peace. Amen.